So we turn in the Old Testament to the book of Job, Job 5, reading the entirety of that chapter. God's holy and inspired word, Job chapter 5. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are not far from, or are are far from safety. They're crushed in the gate, and there's no one to deliver them. The hungry eats his harvest, and he takes even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble, as sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword of their mouth from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, uh, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beast of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beast of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. And you shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. And you shall come to your grave in ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So what goes around comes back around. Life is a boomerang. You give what you give you get in return. Now, such sayings and ideas like these, we tend to be attracted to for they give us a nice logic for life. Since life and history can get so clogged with so much confusing muck, it is comforting to think that you get served what you deserve. If you're good, good things will come to you. But if you're a baddie, then eventually your evil will catch up to you. You may get away with it for your sins for a time, but there is no deadline or statute of limitations for comeuppance. Besides, this isn't just comforting and hopeful, but it feels right and just. 
in a world so stormy with injustice, there has to be a righting of the wrongs, a rewarding for those who are virtuous. Yet where this, <clears throat> this, uh, yet where we like this truth, is this, or there's truth to this, is this the whole story? Does this explain everything we experience under the sun? Well, Eliphaz is confident that he has just the right answers for us, just what the doctor ordered. Though from his dogmatism, we will see that something very precious is excluded. So as you'll remember, we are halfway through Eliphaz's first speech to Job in order to comfort and console him in his mind-bending agony. And in chapter 4, he started off gentle, mindful of Job's grief. Then, in a rather simplistic fashion, he reminded Job of the retribution principle. You reap what you sow. And he related his night vision that abstractly presented God as supremely transcendent and humans as pathetically low and perishable with no real value. Well, these points are basically just the setup. They arrange the stage for Eliphaz's main drama. They are the preliminary foundation laid for his direct application. So now Eliphaz looks at Job straight in the eye for the practical application, the real important stuff. And he starts by telling Job to pray. Call out, he says. However, he insists that Job's prayer will be in vain. He says, go pray, but no one will hear you. Will anyone answer you? Will you turn to one of the holy ones? Job can pray and lament and wail, but God is not going to hear him out. Job, you can attempt to use a mediator, one of the holy angels, to carry your petitions to the Lord, but they will not help you. In his present state, all of Job's prayers will fly about as far as a lead balloon. He can crank up his volume as high as he can, but he will be as a mute yelling. Though this seems kind of harsh to tell someone throbbing in grief that their prayers are useless is to turn off their morphine drip. But why are Job's prayers so silent and heavy? Well, Eliphaz lays it out. He says vexation kills the fool, jealousy slays the simple. Prayer is no good for Job because he's acting the fool at the moment. Yes, Eliphaz chides Job for being foolish. It is as if Job is crying, and Eliphaz slaps him across the face and says, Stop your silly fussing, for vexation refers to grief, and jealousy includes passions and envy. Eliphaz describes Job's lament in chapter 3 as being too emotional as a childlike temper tantrum. Such wild emotions are foolish and deadly. Your belly aching will kill you, Job. Then Eliphaz describes the fate of the fool. If he's seen it once, he's seen it a thousand times. The fool will take root only to wither and die. The fool's kids have no safety. They're crushed in the gate without a savior. 
Eliphaz's transparency here makes you throw up a little bit to the back of your mouth. For he says that fools' kids get crushed to Job, whose children were actually crushed. And he piles on more. The hungry will devour his harvest, the thirsty will drink up his wealth, and they'll carry it off in baskets and hooks. A fool's estate is raided and packed off. This friend, Eliphaz, is being bold. He's telling it like it is. Job, you have been a fool, and your immature emotions are keeping you tied to folly. Now, in our grief, sometimes we are foolish, and in love, we need to be told to knock it off. But to say this to Job makes you question Eliphaz's eyesight. Though this, in this brief story about the fool, verses 1 through 7, Eliphaz makes a couple of interesting points. First, in verse 3, he says, I cursed his dwelling. How? He, that is, he saw the fool take root, and Eliphaz spit out a curse. But why is Eliphaz cursing the fool? Well, he is because he's acting the moral police. He's his brother's keeper, and so he must punish by a verbal malediction the wicked fool when he sees him. This is a citizen's arrest. It is Eliphaz being a Karen. This betrays Eliphaz's feeling of moral obligation to warn and rebuke Job. By this cursing, the high sense of self-righteousness of Eliphaz is showing. As well as such a speedy imprecation stiffs arms pity and mercy. He saw the fool and suddenly cursed him. This is a hasty judgment and impulsive judgments are quick to go afoul. As Eliphaz pulls a speck out of Job's eye, we get the feeling that there is a plank in his. Next, though, Eliphaz concludes his resume of the fool by making a significant theological point in verses 6 and 7. He says evil doesn't come out of the dust. Trouble doesn't sprout from the soil. That is, he asserts that evil and affliction is not a natural part of our world. Trouble isn't an automatic part of nature. Instead, he says man is born to trouble. Or better, man sires trouble. Where does evil and affliction come from? Well, not from the natural world, but from humans alone. All tragedy is sired by mankind. And the final line of verse 7 is particularly vivid. Literally, this line should be translated, the sons of pestilence arise to fly. And pestilence here is also the name of a god for plague and disease. Thus, Eliphaz calls man a demon of epidemic, and his kids, as sons of the pandemic, fly to spread their deadly infection. By this, Eliphaz is alluding to Genesis 3 and the common curse. And he asserts that all evil, suffering, and trouble comes from the sins of humans. No evil comes from creation, but it all spreads from the sins of humans like a pandemic. Man is the sire of sorrow, and woman is the mother of misery. Now, clearly, 
As Eliphaz is applying this to Job, he's asserting that there can be no other cause for his agony than sin, particularly his own folly. He voices a doctrine of karma, kind of. What Job gave, he got back. And there's two levels on which to assess Eliphaz's argument. First is the specific application to Job. Is his suffering the outgrowth of his folly? Well, we know it's not. And so Eliphaz is making an erroneous application here. Second, is this doctrine of the common curse accurate? Can all affliction and trouble be linked to by to sin by direct causation? Sure, the common curse was unleashed by Adam's sin, but does human sin explain all troubles? Well, when Jesus mentioned that the men that the tower crushed, he denied that it happened due to them being worse sinners. Likewise, we read elsewhere in Scripture that creation was subject to futility, that this world order has been bent. And from this twisted futility, wild evil roams in pandemonium. Weeds are a perfect example as they're part of the curse. But weeds have no regard for personal sin as they grow in the righteous man's garden just as abundantly as in the wicked man's. Eliphaz, then, has a very thin and one-dimensional understanding of the curse. He's a reader of providence, and the answer is always sin. Eliphaz has truth here. Fools do often get punished, but he hastily applies it to Job, and then he weakly links all trouble to sin, the sin of humans. Nevertheless, Job or Eliphaz is not a total downer. He does rebuke Job as acting the fool, but he also warns him that the, that the doors of heavens are shut to his prayer in his estate of folly. Yet as a good teacher, Eliphaz is going to Job, show Job the way out. He points him to what he should be doing. And for this positive a lesson, Eliphaz has a model example for Job. And this supermodel of piety is none other than Eliphaz himself. Verse 8. As for me, if I were in your shoes, Job, this is what I would do. He will lead by example. Job just has to trace the fine letters of Eliphaz. And what would he do? Well, he would seek God in just the right way, and he does by singing a hymn. Yet what we find in verses 9 through 16 is sort of a hymn. It's a doxology doxology to God, listing off all his excellent and holy ways. And the verses of this chorus are orthodox cliches, that you can find throughout the Psalms, the Prophets, and the Law. Eliphaz sings confessional theology to Job, and it's a fine hymn. He says God does unsearchable wonders. His marvels are without number. He sends rain on the earth to paint it green, and he irrigates the fields to be ripe with harvest. God is also the great reverser. He elevates the lowly and gives safety to the sad. While the Lord also foils the machinations of the crafty, and he snares the schemers in their own schemes. 
God makes the famous wise men grope in the middle of the day as if it was pitch night. Here, Eliphaz echoes the curses of Deuteronomy 28. The low and humble, the Lord honors and saves, but the arrogant wise, he pushes, pushes off their high perch. And injustice gets her mouth slammed shut to break her teeth. Therefore, the poor have hope. There is hope for the humble and needy. And this hymn is fully true. There's nothing faulty here. In fact, Paul quotes positively verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 3. You can also hear soundings of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is good biblical orthodoxy. Eliphaz models for Job, Moses, Paul, and Jesus. Though this song does raise one question, the issue of timing, when, when does the Lord perform these reversals? Well, this question comes into view by the harmony of his song, and then Eliphaz gives us the answer in verses 17 and following. After making melody to God, Eliphaz now speaks directly to Job. He said, blessed is the one whom God reproves. So do not, Job, despise his discipline. Job, you better not scorn the, the Almighty's discipline of you. Your loss, all your agony is just discipline. It's a little time in God's gym of fitness and correction, a few swats from his paddle. Remember, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Just heed your reproof, Job. For sure, the Lord wounds. He'll break a bone or two. But then the Lord heals and binds. God is the doctor who has to cut you to make you better. And at at times, the Lord will tie you to a pole and deal out a good old-fashioned flogging. But he'll always turn around and bandage the cuts and administer Advil. Now, again, this is generally true. But to put this to Job is to call him to repent. If he repents of his sin, humility, the hope of God's healing is sure. Indeed, Eliphaz guarantees Job's restoration if he repents. He explicitly promises it. He says, with six troubles, he will save you. With seven pains, evil won't touch you anymore. In hunger, he'll deliver you from death, and you'll be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. And at destruction and famine, you will laugh, Job, and have no fear. Therefore, what is Eliphaz's answer to the when question? When is the timing of Job's reversal? Well, as soon as he repents, Job can have restoration in this life in the very near future. Just repent and all the pains will fly away. His sores will be healed and his honor will return. All it takes is repentance and Job will be sitting with the nobles once again. And there's more. Not only does Eliphaz guarantee Job a speedy recovery, but he ensures him that his healing will be Edenic. Note the paradise imagery in verse 23. It says he will be in covenant with the stones of the field and have a peace treaty 
with the wild animals. What does this mean? Well, both of these are hindrances to farming success and profit. Wild beasts reduce your lambs and goats. And rocks, well, they seem to grow in your field to make your farming bumpy and rough. And yet for Job to have a peace treaty with the rocks and the predators means they will not hinder his profitability in the least. The rocks will stay below the surface and the bears will have no appetite for his sheep. This is an ideal harmony with the wild world, kind of like Adam in the garden. Thus Job will also have peace in his tents. It says he will inspect his estate and nothing will be amiss. His offspring will be many, and his grandkids like the grass of the earth. Eliphaz promises Job more kids than he had before. The ten he lost will be replaced with 25 more. His poor wife. But then, at a good old age, when his eyes are still bright and his mind sharp, Job will welcome the grave in peace. Like golden wheat, Harvested in peak season, Job will close his eyes in death without pain. This is not merely a fine restoration, but it's great. It's ideal. By repentance, Job's redemption will be soon and masterfully idyllic. And if this sounds too good to be true, Eliphaz lays down a deal guarantee. He closes off his speech with a dogmatic confidence. He says, we have searched this out. It is true. Hear it, Job. Listen and know it for your benefit. This is 100% true and reliable without a shadow of doubt or a hint of exaggeration. Eliphaz even uses the first person plural, we. This reflects traditional orthodoxy. The fathers, all the sages that have gone before, have found this out to be true. Thus, Eliphaz is handing Job not just his own correct knowledge, but ratified dogmatic doctrine. Without a doubt, Eliphaz is bold and confident here. He's completely sure of himself. And yet, it's hard not to get the feeling that he's being overly confident. Is this really true? Is it a hundred percent truth? Does repentance immediately win a paradise redemption? Well, there are truths here. God does discipline those he loves. He does exalt the lowly and bring low the arrogantly wise. Also, what Eliphaz predicts as restoration does largely happen at the end of this book of Job. Thus, Eliphaz basically has a three-point sermon here. One, Job has been the fool. Two, God restores the repentant. And three, if Job repents, ideal restoration is his. His logic seems correct. His doctrine feels orthodox. And yet, does his reasoning fit? Two things are required to get it right. One, the truth. And two, the correct application. You can have the truth, but wrongly apply it at the wrong time. So does Eliphaz have the whole truth? Well, he assumes and asserts a very clean relationship 
between suffering and sin. He holds repentance and reward to be an exact proportion. He also states that all hardship has one purpose, discipline. Every pain is to make you stronger. Indeed, Eliphaz makes the retribution principle into a kind of biblical version of karma. Everything you get in life is what you first gave. Everything comes back to you. People who create their own drama deserve their own karma. Moreover, Eliphaz implies that this comeuppance happens all in this life. Eastern uh, karma will carry it over into the law of other lives by reincarnation. But Eliphaz doesn't need other lives. For, for, for him, God will right all wrongs in this life. All the repentant will be restored now, and all the wicked will get their stripes in this life. And sure, there is some general truth here. His song was orthodox, but this doesn't tell the whole story. Not all suffering is due to sin. The weeds testify against all Eliphaz here. Likewise, not all grief is discipline, a summons to repent. The Lord's purposes are much more numerous than this. When hardship hits us, we should always consider. But we don't always have to repent. Also, repentance doesn't always earn restoration, especially speedy and idyllic restoration here and now. And most importantly, not all wrongs are set right in this life. It is not uncommon for the wicked to die peacefully without a stitch of punishment, while the humble and the innocent can perish young and poor. This life is too short to fix all problems. Therefore, Eliphaz doesn't have the whole truth. He has pieces of it mixed with dogmatism, simplicity, and error. What then about his application? Does he read Job right? Is Job a fool who just needs to repent? And here he misses by a mile. Yahweh declared in heaven that Job's sufferings were not due to his sin. Instead, Job is agonizing because he's so righteous. It was because he was so upright that the evil one attacked him. Hence, Eliphaz's order for Job to repent is a temptation to lie. Eliphaz is trying to get Job to compromise his integrity. If Job just threw up his hands and surrendered and said, All right, you're right, I sinned, forgive me. This would him be him be lying against his integrity. It would be insincere. Additionally, Eliphaz is coaxing Job to repent by rich blessings. He dangles the carrot of Eden, and so he reduces repentance and restoration to economics. And this is what Satan did when he said God, Job loved God only for his money. And so Eliphaz encourages repentance for its profits. Confess sin and just watch the money roll in. But this makes Job's covenant relationship with God more of a business partnership. 
If Job obeys Eliphaz, he will be giving up on his integrity for some easy blessings, which would prove Satan right that God's grace has failed to make, uh, God's grace failed to make Job love God more or for himself alone. Thus, even with all his different truths, Eliphaz is not speaking wisdom. He is playing the fool as he accused Job of the same. And in this, he excludes the deeper wisdom of God. For the Lord has many more reasons for sufferings and troubles in this fallen world. Sin and personal sin does not explain everything. Remember when the disciples asked Jesus, If the man born blind, that this happened because of his sin or due to the sins of his parents? And Jesus said, no, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Indeed, if Job's dogmatic doctrine was completely true, it would exclude the cross. If sin causes all suffering, if personal iniquity explains your pains, then Christ could not die on the cross as the righteous one. But Jesus did not suffer for his sins. He suffered for our sins. By the agony of the cross, the Lord glorified himself in the opposite way of karma for this life only. Christ died not for restoration here and now, but for the glory set before him. Christ was resurrected not to set all wrongs right in this life, but to fix them in his second coming. His death redeems us not from physical death, but from the eternal death in hell. The cross is the wisdom of God that foils the seeming wisdom of Eliphaz. Therefore, Christ is a better comforter than Eliphaz. In our pain and folly, before Eliphaz, he would curse us suddenly and tell us to repent. His advice turns repentance into a work that pays the price for restoration. Under Eliphaz's advice, if you aren't healed, then simple. Your repentance wasn't good enough. More penitence needed. The consolation of Eliphaz is the law. But in Christ, you hear the gospel. In your grief, Jesus tells you that it's not all about sin, but it is about his glory. In our folly, Jesus does not spit a curse at you, but he forgives you in mercy. In the gospel, repentance is not an economic work. But it's a saving grace worked in you by the Spirit to link you to the mercy of Christ. Also, Christ will never tell you that your prayers are all in vain. For he is the Holy One, the mediator, who is praying with you and for you so that your prayers are heard. Moreover, for your final comfort, Jesus points us to glory. He gives us a heavenly-mindedness that looks far beyond this age, this cursed world under the sun. By grace, Jesus keeps you for a consolation where there is no more death, 
no more tears, and everything will be set right. Thus, may we rejoice in the wise comfort of the gospel and the mercy of Christ. And may this be the gospel wisdom that we speak to others in their time of sorrow and grief, and that we also speak to ourselves. For in this way, we let the glory be to God, we rest in his gospel, and we wait to when all things will be made clear and be made right. Amen. Let us pray.